everyone. Thank you for joining us tonight. Before I introduce our guest speaker, I wanted to let you know that you could win a copy of her memoir tonight simply by commenting in the comment section a question. So ask her a question and that enters you into a chance to win a copy of her memoir. And then at the end of the program, I will announce those winners and you can pick up your copy at the second floor information desk. It is an honor for me to introduce Ruth Warner to you tonight. She is an internationally renowned speaker and author. Her debut book, The Sound of Gravel, became an instant New York Times bestseller. It was People Magazine's Book of the Week, which called her memoir a haunting and harrowing testament to survival. New York Magazine called her story addictive, and a full-page A review in Entertainment Weekly stated that Warner is a survivor, letting the unbelievable events of her childhood speak for themselves. She tells her story with power and insight. Please help me give a warm welcome to Ruth Warner. Thank you, Ruth, for joining us tonight. Hi, everyone. Hi, Lisa. Thank you so much for having me. It's my pleasure. I'll turn it over to you and I'll let you go. <laughs> All right. Thank you. Um, first, before I get started with my pictures, I really wanted to thank everybody for being here, but also to let you know how important libraries were in my life. Um, I grew up uh, mostly in Mexico, but we visited our grandparents in California and they had a library right around the corner from them. And it's really there that I started to love books and we checked out records and I was just so surprised at the fact that I could actually um, check out books and records for free. So it really facilitated my love of music and my love, love of stories and books and reading. And then I, uh, gosh, I used it all of my life, all the way through college when it was uh, where I did all of my studying. And then actually my local library here where I live now is partly, um, I actually wrote part of my book there because I needed the quiet. Um, and since my book, The Sound of Gravel has been out, I um, have had so much support from librarians all over the country. And it's just an honor for me to be invited to be here with you tonight. So thank you so much uh, for letting me share my story with you. Now I'm gonna try to open this up, make sure I says share. Oh, there we go, I found it. Sorry, I'm not the best with technology, but I'm learning. All right. Ruth, before you get started, I actually already have a question for you. Oh, sure. <laughs> <laughs> One of our watchers wants to know if this is your first book. It is my first book. Um, I got pretty lucky. I'll tell you a little bit about how I found a publisher too later on. Um, so yeah, it was uh, my husband and I, I actually started writing it when I first met my husband and we thought, well, um, this will probably take about eight months and it ended up being a, a much longer process. Uh, took classes and ended up taking me close to five years before I finally finished it. Um, so yes, thank you. It is my first book. Can you see the photographs now? Yes, they're good on our end. Okay, sounds good. I am my mother's fourth child and my father's 39th. I grew up in Colonial LeBaron, a small pioneer-like farming community in the countryside of Chihuahua, Mexico a town about 200 miles south of the El Paso, Texas border. My family and I called it the colony. My father's family founded the colony in the early 1940s and established it as a place for polygamous Mormons to freely practice their religion. Um, and my dad, a photograph of him, this is the photograph of my father that I grew up seeing in church every day um, or every Sunday as a little girl. Um, and my dad was a staunch fundamentalist who firmly believed in the church's early polygamous teachings. I grew up surrounded by the gravel roads and barbed wire fences he helped build and the narrow irrigation ditches he helped dig. My father, um, they started the colony when I was, I mean, in the 1940s and 
by then my father had had a revelation or a vision that he was to be God's prophet. And he started the church of the firstborn with his brother, Erbil in the mid 1940s. And that grew and they became missionaries and they had followers and grew converts all over the world. And they were part of, um, they moved south of the border to, into Mexico because when polygamy became illegal here in the United States. And many polygamists went south of the border. In fact, some went north of the border into Canada, but my family went south of the border. And my dad was born in the States, but he grew up there. Um, and by the time he was 18, the colony that he started, that originally started with uh, polygamy, had gone more to be a monogamous society. But he felt strongly again in the church's founding beliefs. And so he started his church after he had his revelation in the mid-1940s. And by the mid-1950s, he actually went to um, into Utah, where my grandparents, my mom's parents lived. My mom at that time was about 14 years old. And my grandmother, Tressie Warner, who I'm actually named after, Tressie Ruth Warner, and my grandfather, Leo, from Plano, Texas, was a Mormon. So my grandmother grew up Southern Baptist in Meeker, Oklahoma. And my grandfather was a uh, monogamous Mormon, a traditional Mormon, and had a big family out of Plano, Texas. So they met and married, and my great-grandfather did not attend the wedding because back then, people just didn't. Um, he was very against the Mormon church at that time. And so they moved to Utah, and one Sunday, they, actually my grandmother always complained that she never got to raise her kids Christian because back then she had to raise the kids Mormon. And uh, my grandfather, they attended the Mormon church in Utah, and they, which was a traditional Mormon church. And one day they came out of Sunday school with all the kids, my mom was 14 years old, and they found a pamphlet on their windshield, underneath, underneath their windshield wiper. And it was a pamphlet that was filled with questions about polygamy in the Mormon church, because back then, I mean, we know a lot about polygamy now, but back then it was not being talked about and it was kind of secretive in the church or actually very secretive. And my grandfather being a very devout Mormon and very religious man was curious about the fact that these questions were asking about polygamy. So he went to his bishop and asked about polygamy and asked about the prof what Joseph Smith, the founder of Mormonism, taught about it. And the bishop didn't really have a satisfactory answer him, according to my grandfather. And within a week, literally, the church that my mother had grown up in and that they had raised their kids in um, had sent them a letter of excommunication, meaning that they were kicked out of the church. And my grandfather took it as a sign from God that my dad and his and uh, his brother Herbal, who were the ones who left the pamphlet on the windshield, and he took that as a sign from God that my dad and my uncle Herbal were right, and that um, he needed to sell all of his property in Utah and move south of the border so that he could practice some of those those teachings that uh, my dad was practicing. So my mom was in middle school, moved south of the border. She had three older sisters. My grandparents brought property there. And by the time my mom was 15, I think she was 16 years old when she really started to have a crush on my dad. And you can see he's much older than she is, but he uh, already had, I think, four wives. She became his fifth wife when she was 17 and he was 42. And she told me growing up that it was, she always knew she wanted to marry him. She felt like his life gave her purpose. And she really believed wholeheartedly in, the, in his divinity and the fact that he was a prophet and she was excited about having a family and kids. And um, they had three children before me. And Many of my siblings were much, much older than I was uh, on my dad's side, but I was her fourth child and I was born in the summer, in the spring of 1972. And by the spring of 1972, the church had been going through a lot of turmoil. My uncle Erville, my dad's brother, was having visions of his own 
and decided at that point that, in fact, he was the prophet and he was supposed to be God's voice on earth. And they had a falling out. They had disagreements about how to uh, run the church, about how to run the church's property. And they split up and my uncle Erbil actually started his own church. And he started under the fact, under the idea that he was the prophet and that my dad was a false prophet. So he actually converted several of my father's following, the people that they had uh, had uh, brought to the church together. And my uncle um, started preaching that my dad was a false prophet and pretty much told the followers that they had gathered together, many of whom were from the United States, some from Mexico and actually some from Europe as well that had moved south of the border to live in their promised land, as they called it. And my dad, by the time I was born, 1972, I was three months old, and my uncle Erbil had convinced his followers that because my dad was a false prophet and that was a very uh, heinous crime, that he needed to be killed. And after he'd been in the church, by the time I was born, he had his new church and he convinced his followers to kill my dad. And one afternoon we were in Mexico, just south of California and traveling on a trip. They took my dad on a wild goose chase and told him that they wanted to talk about religion. And he had several, my uncle Herbal had several of his father's his followers actually have my father shot. And my uncle Erval was arrested in Mexico for the murder, but then was released the next day. And my family believes that they bribed the officials um, in the community they were arrested in. And my father ended up, my mom was devastated by it. Uh, at that point, my dad had seven wives and 39, 42 children. And she was, she had four little kids. I was her youngest and she was devastated. By this time, my grandparents from the United States had moved back to California because they had seen my mom grow up um, or raise kids in poverty. And so we moved back to live with my grandfather and my grandmother. And we were there for a couple of years. And I remember most of my life talking to my grandfather that he always had this, and I like this photograph of him because he always had this look of regret on his face. Like he was like, he always felt like it was the biggest mistake of his life to move his family south of the border. And he actually had three daughters marry into polygamy, all of whom left except for my mother. And my mom, in spite of everything that happened and in spite of the way that my father was killed, she still believed in his divinity and his teachings. She felt it was her place to be a polygamous wife, which was back then one of God's biggest commandments, according to my family. And uh, she felt it was her place to continue having, ch having children. And so when I was three years old, she married my stepfather. And we moved back to Colonial LeBaron back south of the border. And this is my stepfather and my mom the day they were married. And actually my great-grandmother, my grandmother actually, uh, my dad's mom and his mom in this photograph. And we moved to my stepfather's dairy farm in Mexico. And at the beginning, it was fun. This is me as a little girl. The property we moved on the southeast side of Colonial LeBaron, and you can see we had, it was a pretty simple, home pretty simple we didn't really have electricity not at that point anyway we had an outhouse and i loved sitting on my um the old workhorse where we were so i was it was a lot of fun we had peaches we had uh, a lot of freedom to play as kids and i didn't know anything about not having electricity or having electricity but looking back the place was a pretty big mess we lived in a two bedroom adobe house, no electricity, and the wind literally blew through the adobe bricks. Um, in the winter time, it was pretty cold. And by the time I was four years old, almost five years old actually, my little brother Aaron was born. And it was in the summer of 1977 that became the summer of how to's. And that was the summer my mom decided that she was going to teach me how to be 
um, a good wife and a good mother. Of course, at the beginning, um, her her idea for my life and really the idea for everybody's life, uh, all the girls' lives in Colonial LeBaron was to become a good polygamous wife and to have many children. That was part of the religion. Um, and they believed that um, by doing that, that was it was her place to win God's favor, basically, that that was the only way for women uh, to eventually become, be able to go to heaven and see God again. But I didn't understand that back then. And she taught me how to make bread. And that was one of the biggest things that we did. We had barrels of wheat in our corral and in our uh, garage and corral. And we ground our own wheat and we made our own bread. And I remember sitting with her and her telling stories about my dad. It was like the most fascinating thing for me because I had always wanted to know my dad and I knew he was our prophet in the community and that he was still the leader of that prophet, Herbal's family. And had been literally moved to the United States and were killing people all over Mexico and all over the United States. And that's, of course, a different story. But he became known in the media in the U.S. media as the Mormon Manson and was actually one of the biggest uh, serial killers in the history of the United States um, and was eventually caught. But for me, um, not having a father, I, you know, I, I always loved to hear about him. And it was something that I really loved. I loved being by my mom's side and I loved to have her teach me how to bottle peaches and how to change a diaper and how to make bread. And the one thing that I remember, the one story I remember about my mom that was uh, very sweet was that she, we didn't have a lot, you know, my stepfather was, had two wives and close to 25 children. So she kind of had to learn how to make ends meet on her own. And she, we didn't have the money to buy rectangular bread pans. So she took juice pans, like the Dole juice pans about this high and she, the cans, and she would take off the labels and then she would fill the dough into the cans and let it rise, set it in the oven straight up. And we always had, by the end of it, round loaves, loaves of bread. And I, as a kid, thought that everybody had round loaves of bread. Like I had no idea that it wasn't normal to have a round peanut butter and jelly sandwich until I started the first grade. And I got to first grade and I was so embarrassed because um, I, because I was the only one who had a round sandwich and everybody else had a square one. But then I ended up feeling better about it um, and realized that it was kind of neat, especially when people started to ask me what if they could try my peanut butter and jelly sandwich, it's pretty exciting to be a little bit different. This is my little brother, Aaron, inside our living room. And the barrel heater behind him was the only heat that we had inside of us. We filled it with wood to keep the place warm. And he fit inside it a little bit better than I did. But this was another way that my mom was pretty creative. She, we, we see the little bear, the little bucket next to the, the tub, and that was there for to collect rain from the, from the uh, holes in the ceiling. She was always pretty creative to make the best of what she could with what we had, and I think that's something when I think about growing up in Mexico and what that was like. It was something that has really helped me with my resilience, especially this past year, uh, being able to be creative and do the best we can with what we have. Um, so my stepfather took a third wife. And at that point, he became there was something about my stepfather that always made me feel uncomfortable. And I'm not sure if you ever have that feeling inside you where it's just um just an uncomfortable feeling where you know something isn't right and i found that out i felt that way about my stepfather since the very beginning and by the time he took a third wife he became very physically abusive towards my mom and she one day gave him the money to buy a shower head because we didn't have an indoor bathroom yet and she had money she actually had money from welfare because she was an American citizen and was able to get money from the government in El Paso 
with an address there. But she often lent part of that money to Lane's wives and and to his kids and the, the things that they needed. But she wanted a shower head. And uh, so we didn't have to keep using that bathtub anymore. And he came home one day and he was supposed to have a shower head with him with the money that she had given him. And he had given it to his first wife. And she was so angry. She's like, where is my shower head? And he pretty much said, I gave it to my first wife. She has more children than you do. And she belongs to this family. And so she gets it first, which is what happened in polygamy. The first wives it kind of went on down the line from first, second, third, fourth, et cetera, as far as uh, needs being met. And he was white. She had more, more children, but my mom would not let it up. And he ended up having her on the floor, whipping her, telling her not to disobey and not to speak up to him. And my mom, it was so devastating to watch her being hit that way. My, they had argued before, but it had never been that bad before. And my brother, my brothers and I walked to school the next day and I couldn't even look at them. There was so much shame with what had happened. And I felt overwhelmed by it all until I heard the sputtering of my mom's VW bus. She drove a VW bus all over Mexico and came, came into the schoolyard, parked into the um, potholed, wet, soggy ground. And she screamed out for us to come out and bring our things that we were going to California to live with my grandparents again. And I was so relieved. We drove all night and arrived at my grandparents' house in California there. And it was amazing because my grandmother still cooked Southern food and she had already had a pot roast done. And I walked inside the house and it had carpet and it had central heating and it had the smell of delicious food. And she made one of the best meals of my life up to that point. And I was so excited. I started school. I loved my teacher. I loved everything. I loved being able to get my hair curled. And if you can see here, we actually had electricity. So she was able to curl my hair <laughs> and my, my sister's hair. And um, so it was, I remember feeling like I just loved my lucky charms and it felt like that lucky charm sort of life. I loved going to school and playing with my classmates. My school was like a city block, the size of a city block. Um, it, we just had everything. And then one day I got that pit feeling in my stomach again. And as I walked home from school, I crossed the crosswalk and saw my stepfather's truck in the driveway again. And my heart just sank. I just knew that it was going to be um, not good news. And as I walked into my grandparents' living room, she was sitting there with him and said that she was pretty much ready to work on her marriage. She wanted to go back and be close to the church with the people that be around the people that she believed um, went to church with and around her own community. And I know she broke my grandparents' heart in spite of the fact that they had taken her there to Colonial LeBaron as a teenager. I think that uh, my mom's decision to go back when the rest of her family had come back to the United States uh, pretty much devastated them and she broke their heart over and over again. And she didn't mind too. It was hard to go back to that lifestyle. When we did go back, my stepfather, this is a picture of our house from the other side. And when we went back, we did have an indoor bathroom. My mom finally got that shower head that she had wanted for so long. And we had an indoor toilet that we could use. And my stepfather had found, I'm sure, the toilet maybe at a dumpster or something, and he put it in, but it didn't have a handle to flush. So we used a five-gallon bucket to flush the toilet, a five-gallon bucket of water. And it was hard, and especially at that point, I was about eight years old when I found a darker side of my stepfather. And that is about the time when he started to sexually abuse me. And when it first happened, I thought, well, I, I just blamed myself. I didn't really even understand what was going on. 
But I had several stepsisters at that point, and my stepfather had taken a second wife, a fourth wife at that point. So I had a lot of stepsisters and spent my time with them to try to get out of the house. And when I spoke to them one day, I found out that he was also abusing them. And so we had the, I don't think I would have had the guts to talk to my mom um, without them. So we went to our moms and we told them what was going on. My stepfather was kicked out of the colony, so to speak, uh, for a while, but his wives went back to the local authorities and asked if he could come back in. And he came back at that time. And it was probably one of the most devastating parts of my of that part of my childhood up to that point that my mom had decided to take him back in. Um, the abuse went on for a few years until I became a teenager and I started leaving and my mom kept having kids. Uh, that was the thing that they did. That's what they thought their responsibility was. And she had a baby about every 18 months and was sick a lot. She was depressed a lot. I didn't think about depression back then, but that was what I realized now is that she didn't really have time to recover from her pregnancies after having a baby every 18 months. And she had 10 kids by the time I was 15 years old. And I made the best of it. I hung out with my friends. At that point, my mom said that I could leave when my stepfather was around. And that worked for me at the time. And one of the things that my stepfather did while we were gone to California is he placed, he put in the electricity in the house, but he was not an electrician. And there were electrical wires all over the house. And there was a transformer that was connected to wires that went outside the house. And those wires were 220 volt, which is a really high voltage. And they were all over our yard. And he had buried under the fence, an ungrounded barbed wire fence along a ditch to his first wife's house. She lived about an acre away from us on the same property, on the same farm. And he had buried the wires, but the wires were not buried deep enough. And one morning in the summer of 1987, those wires, they were covered with electrical, ta electrical tape, but there had been a storm one night and the electrical wires were exposed. The dirt had washed away from them and they ended up touching the bar ungrounded barbed wire fence. And my little brother, Micah, who you see here in this picture, and in this picture here, in fact, this is just a couple of days before um, the morning I'm, I'm talking about. And if you look behind them on that barbed wire fence, that fence along that ditch had become electrified with 220 volts. And he and my little stepbrother standing next to him had walked outside and tried to cross the fence and were both killed. And then my mother, not understanding that the fence was electrified, tried to save him to pull him off the fence. And she was also killed that afternoon in 1987, July 10th, 1987. I was 15 years old. I, my youngest sister was still nursing. She was five months old, Holly. I had a, my two-year-old sister, a four-year-old sister, a 17-year-old special needs brother, and also a 10-year-old brother. And Micah, when he passed away that day, he was five years old. Overwhelmed with the situation, my grandmother came down. At that point, my grandfather had passed away and we begged to let, uh, we begged my stepfather to let us all go to California to live with my grandmother, at least for the summer, for the rest of the summer, because she had a small house in California that we had lived in and knew very well. But he was adamant, didn't want us to take the kids and pretty much said that we couldn't go. So I was left, we were moving, I was moving with my sisters and my brother. Um, we were moving 
from house to house, from wife to wife, um, each of them trying to decide what to do with the kids and who wanted to raise them and who was going to take care of the little girls. And at that point, because I had been the person to help my mom so much, there was this mother bear instinct inside of me that was so strong. And I knew who my stepfather was, and I knew that he was still abusing little girls. And he would try to take them and be alone with them, even at my mom's funeral and my mom and brother's funeral. He tried to take Elena, who was only four, and I just looked at him and I said, you're not taking these little girls anywhere without me. There was no way that I was going to let him take them away from me. And I just had that innate need to make sure that I could take care of them in a way that they, that I couldn't take care of myself or that I couldn't protect myself. And I really wanted to be that protector to them the, and give them the kind of protection that I didn't feel that I had growing up. And it was extremely difficult. I wasn't sleeping, uh, doing the best we could with my little sister. She had still been nursing. And so we were trying to get her the right baby formula and she wouldn't nurse with any of the other mothers in the church or in the colony. And my, um, Eventually, what ended up happening, my special needs brother, who was 17 at the time, um, he came home. He had been working with my stepdad. And I'd been really focused on protecting my sisters and watching them really closely because they were so young. And I never considered that my stepdad would abuse my special needs brother. And he was about mentally at the level, he was 17, but about mentally at the level of a five or a six year old had a lot of trouble with communication and speaking and understanding things, um, but was otherwise developmentally, his, his physical self was in great shape. And we found out that he was, he came, my brother Luke came home one afternoon after working with my stepfather and said very nervously and cautiously that he didn't trust him. And I pushed him a little further and I asked him what was going on and he ended up showing me what my stepfather was doing to him to try to help me understand without words what was going on. And I realized that he was abusing him. And I was just like, you got to be kidding me. Um, so at that point, I knew we're out. I called, I had an older brother living in San Diego, my brother Matt, called him collect. Um, my stepfather went to El Paso, Texas. He had little businesses there, um, trailer parks and stuff that he was collecting rent on. And I called my brother, Matt, who was working in San Diego, California at that time, not far from my grandparents or my grandmother at that time. I called, I told him everything, sobbing what was going on. And I told him he needed to come and pick us up. And he said he was actually a newlywed, had just gotten married. He was only 18 years old, but everybody in the colony married young. Uh, and he just said to get everything ready that he had just purchased a used Oldsmobile station wagon and he'd be there to pick me up. And then that, that night, the next night, actually about midnight, I had all the bags ready. I had all the paperwork I needed, a, you know, a few food stamps that my mom had in her purse. Otherwise we didn't have anything to us, to our name, uh, put it all together. He was there. We packed our bags. We were kind of afraid. Actually, we were afraid that Lane was going to come back because we were headed right in the same direction back to the United States um, that he would be traveling back from. And we took an alternative route, went through Douglas, Arizona. And as we left the colony, we had the lights off, drove slowly so that nobody knew where we were going or what we were doing because he had a lot of family in town and uh, the, the colony was pretty... You know, I, it was a type of patriarchal situation where really I had no say or no rights, especially not over my sisters. And we drove all night. My grandmother took us in. She was in her mid-60s and not in great shape. Um, but she ended up, uh, he actually, my stepfather, ended up following us there. And we ended up being wards of the state, my siblings and I. 
and my grandmother filed for custody of us. And it was a, a crazy battle. I ended up having to testify against my stepfather in court. And um, my brother testified as well as he could. And by the time the judge was ready to give out um, his decision about custody, my stepfather just didn't even show up. He wasn't there. So the custody automatically went to my grandmother. We lived with her for close to four years. I'll show you one of the pictures. This is us in the States not long after my mom died and we moved to the States. My brother Aaron, uh, my little sister Holly, Elena, and Leah. And my grandmother ended up, my grandfather actually, ended up helping her pay off her house and we stayed with her for four years, but she had advanced diabetes. She had a hole in her heart. She had was blind in one eye and it was a tough situation. So by the time I was 19 years old, it was time to figure out what to do. And I just had this fear of the foster care system in the United States. I'd heard so many horror stories. And after losing my brother and my mom, I was just like, I had to make that decision again about what I wanted to do and where we would go and what we would do. And my mom's youngest sister lived in Southern Oregon and uh, said that she would help me find a place there with my sisters. And that's what we ended up doing. Actually, when I was 19, we had a home of our own in Southern Oregon. And I had some help uh, purchasing a house through Farmers Home Administration, which is a first time uh, home buying situation. I wrote them about my situations with my sisters and that I was a single parent to them and uh, had the um, ch child protective services come over and see the house and look in my fridge and check it all out and they decided that they that my siblings were probably better off with me than being in foster care and i remember it's so funny because once we moved into that house which i was so grateful for it just felt like it fell out of heaven um my neighbor was on the phone talking to her sister i think it was or one of her friends and she said, you know, there's this family next door to us and they have no parents living with them. <laughs> and I was like, well, <laughs> I'm their parents at the time. So it was uh, tough, but I, I spent a lot of time in school with my little sisters and I worked part-time at a wrecking yard. And I had always let, remembered that time in the first grade in California when I loved my sister so much, my teacher so much. And I loved learning. I loved being in class with them and decided to go back to school to get my degree to become a teacher. And that's what I did. It took me like seven years to get a degree to teach because I was single parenting and working and trying to make ends meet. Um, so this is us here at my graduation. Um, the five, the party of five, nothing like the TV show, if you remember that. Um, and we moved to Portland, Oregon, and that's where I live now. That's where I met my husband. We're all still really close. I'm quarantining with them. Uh, this is a picture of the wedding and my brother, Luke, Matt, who helped us bring us out. My little brother, Aaron, my husband, Alan. This is me. Uh, my little sister, Leah, is right next to me, uh, Elena. And Holly, and she was the little baby. She and Leah used to call me mom all the time. Uh, she was so young, she didn't remember, most of them didn't remember my mom, which is why I decided I wanted to write my book so that they would remember and understand what had happened to her and why we moved away and why they didn't know their father and weren't around their father. Uh, so I did that, and like I mentioned earlier, it took me close to five years to finish. And I was so excited. I'll tell you just quickly, and then you can ask questions about um, when I started writing, I, you know, you, once you start writing a book, you start getting rejection, rejection, rejection. But I finally found an editor that loved it at Macmillan in New York City, and which was a huge um, accomplishment for me after I had finally finished the book. And I remember walking into, I had two offers on the book and the first, place that we went into was just so fancy and marble floors and warm. It was in the middle of November, it was freezing. And there were um, brand new offices everywhere. It was like going into, you know, a fancy store and 
I just felt so uncomfortable. I didn't even know how to behave in a place like that. And then we went to the Flatiron Building, which didn't have its electricity working at the time. And they had little, I walked into Flatiron Books and the publisher walked up to me and he looked me in the eye and he said, we want to publish your book. And it was kind of that feeling again, that same feeling, you know, that intuitive feeling I had inside myself that had helped kind of guide me along my life at that point. And I uh, was just thrilled. And I walked into their offices, they were free, it was freezing cold. They had little space heaters everywhere. And they were all, it was a, it was a new, at Macmillan, and so they were all still putting together all their furniture and I looked around and it was rustic and totally I, I was like yeah these are totally my people so it was pretty exciting to finally find that publishing deal and uh, yeah and and that's it brought me here I've been so thrilled to share my story to connect with people um, even virtually which this is the first time I've told my story in a virtual situation so I appreciate your patience with me as I've gone through this. Um, but that's me in New York City. Um, and it's been kind of magical ever since meeting new people. And the best thing about it that I love so much is I'm connecting with people and I'm giving them the opportunity to not just listen to my story, but to hear theirs as well and to have them have the vulnerability to share their stories. It's been incredibly, incredibly powerful and healing. Um, and it's why I'm happy to be here with you. So let me know if you have questions. I'm happy to answer. Thank you so much, Ruth, for sharing your story. Um, I do have a few questions for you. Okay, should, um, I, should I switch out of the screen or? It's up to you if you okay. want to leave your presentation up. Yeah. Okay. So the first question I have is, uh, why did you title your memoir, The Sound of Gravel? That's a good question. And that was actually something that I battled with my publisher with because it was a working title and I was totally willing to change the title. But there was a moment in the book and it was actually at my mom's funeral and I had the set of hot rocks, it was gravel in my hand and I threw the gravel on her coffin and it sounded empty and it, resonated with the emptiness inside me but at the same time i knew right then and there without having her there that i was going to leave i was going to take my sisters with me and that that was not going to be my life anymore so it was the pivotal moment in my life honestly that was so heartbreaking but also um the catalyst to completely change the tra trajectory of my life and so that's that's why that's where i got that sound from and as i wrote the book and went through other drafts. And once we finally decided on the title, I brought out the sound all around us because it was, it was literally, we take the road to the United States and the roads were always paved and they were easy and they, and they worked and they led to, always to the right place if you're following directions. And then we'd go back to Mexico and you take a right off of the freeway into LeBaron. And it was like going back in time. It was like going back to the 1920s to a much more rustic and a rougher way, a harder way of life that was for me at that time home. So it did have some meaning to it, but it also reminds me again of how far I've come, far away from the sound of gravel, if that makes sense. Thank you for your answer, Ruth. Um, I got another question for you. Okay. Were charges ever brought against your stepfather? Good question. That was something that I really struggled with after I came to the States. Mexico didn't have the kind of system, the uh, infrastructure, the system, the legal system, if you will, to convict somebody like my stepfather. And when we came to the States, I, I when we became wards of the state, I worked with a lawyer, my grandmother's lawyer that was working on the custody battle. And I asked about it, like, why, what's going on? Like, why isn't he going, why isn't he in trouble? Why isn't he going to be in trouble? But we had filed for custody and we were working with lawyers in the state of California. And one of the questions the lawyer asked me was, does, did the abuse take place in California? And at that point it had not. 
So there was nothing they could do about the abuse at that point. So if we had gone back to El Paso and Mexico, which, you know, they didn't have any jurisdiction over Mexico, obviously. Um, but the other place where some of the abuse took place was in El Paso, Texas. So we would have, I would have, as a teenager with all those kids, had to go back to El Paso, Texas, which I was not in a position to do to press charges. Um, and unfortunately, it's a good question because I was so frustrated that he got away with all of it, not just the abuse, but also the neglect that led to my mom's and my little brother's death um, from, you know, the faulty wiring on our property. So that was something that was hard for me to grapple with. And I remember hearing through the years, all of his wives left him because he ended up abusing so many more kids and never stopped. It was really, really heartbreaking. Um, but no, unfortunately, he died. It, he died like four or five years ago in a car accident, but never spent any time in jail or never got called to the carpet other than the time that I testified against him in court. Thank you, Ruth. Um, the next question I have for you is, where are your siblings at now? My siblings, we're on the, the younger siblings. So my brother, Matt, the young, the gentleman who helped us escape, I don't have a current picture of him, but I should. Um, he ended up going back to LeBaron. He has 16 kids now, and he's a devout follower, just like my mom was um and that's been kind of a split it was hard for me to see him go back to the religion after i ended up going to college and my you know the path in my life as a single mom with my sisters kind of went the other way and he was married he was having kids and they started having trouble in their marriage and you know i think i you know i didn't understand it at the time i was in my early 20s and i realized that as his life got tougher he kind of fell back into his conditioning, his life in LeBaron. He worked with the LeBarons, my, the LeBaron family who were all in construction. That's part of the way they uh, raised their families and were able to support their families uh, was working in construction in the United States. And so he never was separated in the same way that I was. And so he got drawn back in, if that makes sense. And so he's there still now and he's still you know, he's got a second wife and uh, I think she has like a two month old. He just turned 50 and she's in her mid thirties. So um, yeah, still practicing the religion, still living in LeBaron. The, the younger siblings and I, and my brother Luke, who's a little bit older than I am, my special needs brother, who just came up for Christmas. In spite of the COVID and everything, we picked him up, no airplanes. Um, and I've been quarantining with my two little sisters, Leah and Holly, they still live uh, they live here in the Portland, Oregon area. And then my younger brother, Aaron, and my younger sister, Elena, both work up at Boeing in Seattle. So we're all the, pe the people that, that kind of, all of us that grew up together, I guess. Um, we also live in the Pacific Northwest and we're really close. You know, there's something about, I think that kind of trauma and raising each other and having to depend on each other has made us really close. And it's one of the things that I love doing now, especially since um, uh, Oregon is in partial lockdown. It's not full lockdown, but uh, this last weekend we were uh, at the at the mountain, Mount Hood, close by. And my little sister Leah, she's the first to have a child, and I'm going to show a picture of him because he's so adorable. Um, but this is my little nephew Nolan. So this is who I've been hanging out with in the outdoors um, with my nephew. So we're all still here doing the best we can with everything that's going on. Some of us unemployed, some of us still employed, but I know that um, we're kind of all in this with the rest of the country. But uh, so we're doing the best we can. Again, that was the thing that my mom gave me, I think, was the ability to be resilient and to appreciate and do the best with what we can. And that's what we're doing. So that's that's where we all are. Thank you, Ruth. Um, the next question kind of goes with the one I just asked. Um, were there moments you felt conflicted about leaving the only life you had ever known? And what did that feel like for you? That was really hard in the beginning, especially because, I mean, I think this happens in a lot of families and maybe to an extreme with my family, I don't know, but 
my mom didn't really speak to her sisters because they had all left the religion and she always stayed in Mexico and she wanted to raise her family in LeBaron. And yes, me leaving and taking my sisters where she wanted them to grow up was really, really hard. I felt guilty about it. And in fact, Matt and I, originally we decided that we were gonna take the kids and raise them together. And that lasted about two weeks. I was 15 and he was 18. So just imagine that. Plus he had a new wife that was already pregnant. And so, you know, that was just something my grandmother called us up. We were actually in, living in San Diego uh, where he was working. And she's just like, you need to get the kids back here. <laughs> so uh, I tried to, I wanted to do right by my mom, no doubt. Uh, but the situation with my stepfather um, was not something, he wasn't even supporting us yet. Like, like there was no, nothing there for me to stay except for the neglect and the abuse. He didn't fix the electricity at the house. We didn't have a place to live. And so it was hard, um, you know, and I still have some conflict about that. Like, did I do the right thing? Was it right to keep the family together away from my stepfather? Um, but for the most part, in spite of that guilt, I think that need to protect my family and to protect myself, I think that was stronger. To keep us safe was stronger than the conflict that I felt. And that kept me away. Thank you, Ruth. Um, another question for you. Has there been any discussion in making your story into a movie? And how would that affect you if that happened or is happening? That is another good question. I would love to make it into a movie. Um, but I think it would almost be because of the complexity of the religion and the complexity of characters. I had to cut so many characters um, because, you know, in polygamy and we had huge families and, and the, it, my story ended up being a much more intimate one because I there were just too many characters to write about everybody that had an influence on my life. So how do you put that into a visual medium? I think it would work better as a Netflix series. And I think that would be cool to like go from because of the uh, compelling nature of my father and his brother, Erbil, and what happened with them, it might be interesting to start with their story and then move up to my story and then even move past my story where I leave LeBaron and go into what it's like to come to the United States and raise sisters and you know, learn about myself and grow past the trauma and grow past, not that I'm completely past it, but, you know, to grow and learn and turn it into this longer series. That would be a, a dream. I would love that. Um, when I wrote the book, I was really concerned about what my siblings thought. So I let Matt read it. I wanted to make sure that it honored him. That was also true. Of course, you have to be very tender when you're writing a story about other people's lives, because obviously I can't just write about myself without talk, writing about my relationships. So I had my siblings read my manuscript before I took it to a publisher and we discussed what that might be like for everybody. And when the publicity came out, we were in magazines and I had submitted photographs and that was hard for my little sisters to get that kind of attention. They weren't ready for it. So I think I would be okay with that. I don't, I would, it's hard because of the sensitive nature of some of the things and the way that Hollywood or, you know, movie companies anywhere uh, tend to make things salacious. Like I don't, I would want it to be true to life, but also honorable for my family and not end up becoming this. Uh, salacious, horrible story that's exaggerated or anything. So, you know, I have mixed feelings about it, but authors who end up getting movies, I mean, it's very rare that it happens, but yeah, I mean, it's an opportunity to share my story with more people that I think could be really impactful, um, but I would want it to be, you know, respectful, as, as respectful as pos possible, whether it's a series or a movie, whatever. Thank you, Ruth. Um, that leads me again to my next question. Um, there are some TV shows that have been on TV about polygamy. Um, mm -hmm. Sister Wives is, you know, the one that comes to my mind. Mm -hmm. How would, when you, do you watch those shows at all? And if not, what are your thoughts about how that's portrayed on TV now compared to what you dealt with growing up? 
You know, my situation, again, it's just like anybody's lives. I mean, we all have similarities and there are differences. And I won't say that every polygamous man is abusive and that every polygamous man doesn't take care of his family or that, you know, he's physically abusive, et cetera. Um, so my situation is different than others. But I do believe I have watched sister wives on my LeBaron side, my dad, my biological side of the family, she's a half cousin, I think a cousin once removed or a half cousin, one of the wives on that, on that show. And I believe they're set in Vegas. I can't remember now, but it's hard for me to watch because it's so, I think they romanticize it. And I used to watch Big Love. I don't know if anybody remembers that. It's been a while uh, since that was on HBO, <clears throat> but that was more of a scripted, more of a, a drama series than it was reality TV. And I just felt like they romanticized it, that they didn't show the reality of what it was like for a man to have to support that many kids and how hard it was for the women. And in our lives, my mom had a lot of conflict with her sister wives. She was friends with one of them, but the others, they were, there were all these fights, there was all these jealousy. And it was something that, um, you know, affected the kids and the way that they were nurtured. And I personally, like, if you want to live polygamy, go for it. But what about the, you know, you have to consider the education, the spirituality, all those parts of a child's development that I feel like in big poly polygamous families, like the ones I've seen on TV and also in my own, is that you just don't get that time to um, give to children. I, I think, it, I don't know that I agree with having that many children that you can't really take care of in more than just a financial sense. So I don't know if it's, I guess it's a little Hollywoodized from my perspective. I think they, you know, didn't make it as realistic as, and as hard as I saw many polygamous families suffer, suffer through. Thank you, Ruth. Um, I have watched all of the Sister Wives episodes, oh, and I did watch all of Big Love as well. And oh, you I did. Thought, yes. Oh, oh, yes, I did. <laughs> and I, I assumed that would be your answer that it was romanticized, especially after hearing your personal account. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yep. So. Yeah. Very different. But Big Love was great. I mean, I thought they did a great job with the show itself. It's just the uh, content was hard for me. And I've read a few memoirs too. You know, there have been a lot of memoirs about polygamy, different types of uh, family situations here in the States and also in Mexico. And, uh, you know, even those are kind of hard for me to read. I've read through them, but, and I've learned a lot from them. Um, and so in some ways they're similar, but yeah, it, it's just hard for me, I guess, because of my own experience more than anything. Yeah, I, I totally can see why that would be. Um... Speaking of polygamy, um, I was curious, do you, are you now like a practicing traditional Mormon in your religion or do you follow another religion or no religion? Yeah. You know, for me, because I grew up in a two religious family, so to speak, like my grandmother was Southern Baptist and she could, uh, you know, cite any, she memorized the entire Bible and she had a verse for every situation. And when they left my dad's church, when they left LeBaron in the 70s, she went back to reading her Bible, but she never really went back to going to church every Sunday. I don't know. And she always said, I never converted. I never converted um, to Mormonism. And then my grandfather, Leo, he always went back to the Book of Mormon. And he used to read us as kids growing up in California. He would read us stories out of the Book of Mormon, um, and he loved to read us Christian stories too, little children's stories um, that were adapted out of the Bible. So I grew up with that philosophy, but I also grew up with my hearing my uh, fundamentalist father's philosophy. That was uh, something, you know, he was always a mystical figure to me. I didn't know him. I always wanted to know him, but he was like this divine person in my life um, that I always was interested in ph philosophically speaking and all of them were different and so for me when I started going to school I was extremely interested in religion and philosophy and I took tons of religion classes tons of philosophy um, and I was just fascinated by how of course different they are I'm not saying that all religions are the same 
but the thread of humanity and the thread of the golden rule and the thread of basic human decency and what that is, I think really struck me. And so for me and my fascination with it, I had to separate God from religion. And I, I see God in different religions or the spirit of what I believe, believe that to be. But a lot of that brought me to myself and within myself. And I've always been prayerful and I was praying constantly, you know, before my mom died, like get me out of this situation. And then after my mom died. So I was always an introvert and quiet and very prayerful. And so that's where I went in my deepest times of suffering in that prayer and meditation. And I think that's one of the things that is been the most healing for my life and transformational. And I think that's what God represents to me is this that we're all born into this, but that we can transform through the grace of God, so to speak, and, and create better lives for ourselves and find healing. And so it's in that quiet prayer place that I find God. Thank you, Ruth. Um, another question for you. Do you still teach and how does your experiences affect how you work with students? Oh, yes. That's a good question because I finished my master's degree. I actually applied for graduate school to teach high school Spanish and I got and I got actually I got scholarships. By then I was smart enough to know how to apply for scholarships. You know, I was exposed to the education system enough to apply for scholarship and I went to graduate school completely covered my sisters were still in elementary school and I was so excited about it and by the time I finished with my master's degree I found a job here in Portland Oregon that's how I ended up in Portland Oregon at a high school teaching Spanish one through five so I taught every level of Spanish at the high school level and um, I ended up in the classroom after not having gone to an American high school, by the way, in a classroom teaching mostly sophomores who were all 15 years old, which was the same age I was when I lost my mom. And my experience had been so different than the experience of the kids in the classroom that it was sometimes hard for me to relate to them. And I love learning for me education was such a privilege. In fact, my mom took me out of school when I was 14 because in her perspective, from that religious perspective, the fundamentalist perspective, there was no reason for me to continue going to school. But I loved learning. I loved education. And I just had this passion for it, for it that, that kind of kept, because it was part of my healing process as well, all my learning and um, a better understanding of myself, et cetera. And it was hard for me to understand why high school kids were not excited about learning Spanish. <laughs> But um, but of course, I totally understand. I had so many good students um, and I taught for eight years, actually. Um, and then I took time off to write the book and now I'm continuing to write. I have not been teaching for a few years now um, and looking for a different type of work. I think at this point, I uh, again, I met so many students. It was a great time of my life, but um, now that my sisters have grown and they're all having their own kids and doing things like that, it's, it's, I feel like it's time for me to work with adults. And so that's what I've been doing, following my career, doing some speaking, writing, um, and looking for a part-time job here in Oregon. Thank you, Ruth. Um, you have answered so many questions for us and been so candid and I, I really appreciate it. I can imagine it's hard for you to tell your story, but also healing. And I, I, think I see is. that in you when you talk about it. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for having me. This has been really awesome. I appreciate this opportunity so much. Oh, I, it's my pleasure. I appreciate you being available and sharing your story with the Davis County community. Um, it's definitely not something we hear in our neck of the woods often. So, <laughs> I, 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 <laughs> so I have not been to Kentucky, I have to admit. Um, I've been to a couple of states in the South, but I would love to visit Kentucky at some point. Haven't been to Indiana either. 
um where do i go for barbecue and what's the best kentucky bourbon in your community or in oh your my city? goodness the barbecue question divides our community right smack down the middle oh does half, it oh yes half of us are moonlight fans oh, which okay. is more popular out of our state uh -huh. um, and the locals say the best barbecue joint is old hickory and that is actually a block down from the library so i have to give that my vote you know because i eat there oh, a lot. Yeah. <laughs> options i can do a yes. tasting oh yeah for sure is it, is it like brisket or chick, uh, barbecue chicken what what type of barbecue is it um it is mutton is what we do here and that is um lamb so mm -hmm. it's kind of like chopped up and all put on a sandwich and yummy Ooh, yum. or you can get it shredded and with pickle and onion on that mm, yeah it's good yeah, i know i'm getting hungry for dinner now so <laughs> A little earlier here than in Oregon than it is in Kentucky. But yeah, I'm going to have to keep that on my radar. Then when I get, when the world opens back up again and I get my chance to travel. Awesome. Well, we yeah. would be happy to have you and introduce you, you to some Kentucky barbecue. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Well, again, it was a pleasure to have you. Before I let you go, I do want to announce our five winners that get a copy of your memoir. And those winners are Vicki Ferguson, Debbie Shadler, Linda Cheatham, Bridget Whittinghill, and Jeanette Barrerio. And you guys can pick up your copies at the second floor information desk. They will be there waiting for you. And again, Ruth, thank you so much. It was truly an honor to hear your story. And I thank you so much for sharing it with me and the community. Thank you. Thanks for all the great questions and the great discussion. I appreciate it very much. You all stay safe out there. Thank you. You too. Have a good evening. You too. Thank you. Thanks.